0: take the Bible and turn to the book of Job. We are in Job 38 this morning. If you're visiting with us, uh, we have been working our way through Job at a frantic pace, and we are going to finish in the last chapter, but we will not finish all of Job this Sunday. uh, Next Sunday will be our last week in the book of Job. We are I think this is number 14, week 14 of our studies in Job. We have, in a sense, been working up to this this section, this chapter, this last act, if you will, before what we might call the epilogue at the uh, last part of chapter 42. It's been said that uh, everything uh, in the opening two chapters and this set of chapters, these closing five chapters, really determines how we are to interpret the entire book of Job. And so we have kind of made it through the woods, if you will, of all of the friend's speeches, and we are, we are finally in a place where we, te- we can expect to see some resolution of uh, Job's predicament here. We're not going to read all of Job 38, 39, 40, 41, and 42, as as we have been doing. We will look at the important pieces, and I will entrust uh, entrust the rest of it to your reading at a later time. Let's begin, though, with prayer and ask God's blessing as we read His Word, not only that we'll understand it, but that we will believe it and obey it as He teaches us through His Spirit. Father, thank You so much for giving us words that give life. Words that give reproof and words that bring judgment and warning, words that bring hope and peace and comfort and joy, words that tell us of unfailing love, of divine sovereign power, words that call us to repent, words that cleanse us. Lord, your word is, is remarkable. It has been our privilege to study through Job and to read your words and read what others have said about You and by Your Spirit teaching us to see what has been true and what has not been true. Lord, as we come to this next passage, because it's Your Word, we take it seriously. Because it is Your speaking, then we take it even more, pay more close attention. We know these things are true and right and honest, just and pure. We want to hear You speak don't want to just simply hear so that we can have a novel experience, but so that we might know what you command and what you demand of us, and what we should know and what we should believe and what we should think about you, but also so that we might follow in obedience in what your words have taught us. So help us, please, by your Spirit, give us understanding and give us obedience We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. For the past many, many chapters, Job has uh, argued his innocence to his friends and to God. And he has argued it to the point that he began to make God out to be in the wrong for causing him to suffer. From the very beginning... Job acknowledged that his suffering came from God. This was not Satan's idea. This was not a, a mere coincidence, uh, some tragic uh, you know, fluke. This all came from God. And, and Job was right to say that, that. It did come from God. That's what Job wanted to teach us. But as his friends sat amongst him and continued to condemn him and accuse him of sins that he had not done, Job began to defend himself so earnestly that it turned from mere self-defense, mere stating of facts, to going even further and saying, I am so innocent that everything that God has done to me has been unjust. Not that God didn't do this, but that God did do this, and He is wrong for doing it. As we will see in as in, in, uh, we read in Elihu's speeches, but also we'll see from God's own lips, that Job would condemn God to prove his own innocence. And in this, Job is very, very wrong. Now Elihu, as I said, spent six chapters defending God and attempting to get Job to recognize his error of condemning and accusing God of wrong. But the question is, Has enough been said to persuade Job? And that's the key word. Is is Job persuaded yet? It's one thing to tell Job he's wrong. It's one thing to tell Job the truth. It's another thing entirely to persuade him or to convince Job of the truth. Has Job been persuaded that he is unworthy? He is incapable of being God, which is kind of what Job is, the direction that Job has gone. If he's, not, if he's not checked before he uh, gets the end of his logic, he is kind of assuming to be God himself, that he should be. Is Job going to be persuaded that only God is capable of ruling the universe as he sees fit? Will Job be persuaded to admit that he does not know everything, and that he is unable to be God Will Job be convinced by coming to answers himself rather than being told the answers? And that's really what we have before us. When God comes to Job, God does not explain things to him in the way that Job hopes for. Rather, God comes to him and shoots a a machine gun of questions at Job. Will Job acknowledge the sovereignty of God? As we read it, the question remains then, as I think it's it's kind of glaring at me in neon lights as I read it, is will I be persuaded of these things? Of course, we read and we could skip to the end of the book and find out how Job responded. The story of our life is yet to be finished. Will we be persuaded that God is sovereign? That He alone is able to rule the universe as He chooses. And that my opinion really doesn't matter. It's been said by, um, in the 13th century, the king of Spain, his name was Alfonso. He said this, had I been present at the creation, I would have given some useful hints for the better ordering of the universe. How arrogant is that? And yet, it's not too far off what many of us think. Maybe not what we say. But in practice, I think many of us have a little bit of King Alfonso's thinking in our minds. Chapters 38-42, through as I mentioned, are the key to understanding the rest of the story of Job and how all of this is going to fit in. And the question that I ask is that, will Job be persuaded by Elihu's speeches? And I don't think that it's enough, because as soon as Elihu finishes speaking... Here begins God in chapter 38. Now, it's interesting, and I didn't really look at it much closer than a mere wondering, but at the end of Elihu's speeches, he talks about the whirlwind, and he talks about the majesty of God in his arrival, and all of a sudden, in chapter 38, it seems as no time has passed that God speaks out of a whirlwind. And I just wonder makes no difference here or there, but I wonder if Elihu was speaking because of something he saw coming in the distance. Literally a whirlwind coming. And speaking and reminding him of God, and then as that whirlwind arrives, somehow they've not run for cover, because now the whirlwind has come and God is speaking to Job. I never thought about it until I I was discussing this with a friend. Where were the friends during this passage? It is very likely that they were sitting here listening to Job and God speak. I don't think God was impressing these words upon Job's heart, but rather saying these things out loud. If You watch the Superbook version. The, The friends had walked away, and that's where they were during this interaction between God and Job. But I wonder if they weren't just sitting there listening. We have the privilege of sitting and listening to the conversation between God and Job from a whirlwind. And we find that God will persuade Job. Elihu's words are good. Elihu's words are mostly true, I think, but they are not enough to persuade Job. But God will. And in this section, Job finally gets what he had been desiring all along. All beginning in chapter 3, Job has been saying, if I only had a chance to, to sit with God, to talk with Him, to take him to court, to make him give an answer for himself, I know I would be proven innocent, and I know that God would have to declare me uh, uh, righteous, and that that, I, that there's no way that that He would find any guilt in me. Not that He's sinless, again, but that 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 I didn't do anything to deserve this this type of treatment. But when God finally does arrive, it goes very different from what Job anticipated. This is. Very. Uh, this is, reminds me of the old statement: "Be careful what you wish for," because when you get it, it may not be what you wanted. And that's exactly what happens to Job. Job had crossed the line in his defense of himself. As I said, he's condemning God. Job forty in verse eight. If you want to peek over there, is God says himself there in verse verse eight, chapter forty: "Will you even put me in the wrong?" Another way it said is there: "Will you disannul my justice?" Will you condemn me that you may be in the right? This is God saying this of Job. God has heard everything Job has said of him and to him. And God says, you've gone too far. And so now what we have in Job 38 through 42, the first half of 42 at least, is a battle of wisdom. God will not challenge Job to fight him with weapons or with with brute strength. That's obvious how that would end up. But we do have a battle of wisdom because, as chapter 38 tells us, there have been too many words without knowledge. A lot of of stuff has been said that just isn't true. And really, Job has begun to speak about things that he has no idea about. If I were to stand up here and speak about whatever expertise you have, it would be very quick that I have known nothing about it and I begin to talk about uh, electricity or I begin to talk about uh, engineering or whatever it is that you have some expertise in and it very quickly my ignorance would, would come out. And that's basically what God has said about Job here. that Job, you don't know what you're talking about. And let's, let's put it to the test. And so God takes the offensive here. Job has been very convinced that if God would only uh, you know, show up, show himself, that he would be able to put God on trial, make God answer his questions, and that all would, be, uh, would, would come to the light. But when God does show up in the whirlwind, God does not answer questions. Rather, God takes the offensive. God begins asking questions, and he doesn't give time for Job to answer any of his questions. And so as we read through this, there is so much here, that God is saying to Job that we simply don't have the time to, to this in this time to look through and and, and and understand what Job is saying. But if we can just grab a summary of everything, God is overwhelming Job with how much he does not know. He will not defend his ways to his creation, but he will answer Job. And so in a way, as we begin chapter 38, we see that God is, God is inviting Job to step into the ring. Step into the octagon. And how fearful of an invitation that would be. To step into the ring to contend with God. Look at Job 38. It says, The Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you you make it known to me. God is in charge now. He's never not been in charge, but He is making it obvious that He is the one who will ask the questions. This phrase, dress for action, is a very interesting phrase. We see it at the beginning. God gives two speeches, and the, both of them, He starts off this way. Dress for action. Uh, the, 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 the literal rendering is, Give, gird up your loins. And you think, Well, okay, if I told you to gird up your loins, do you know what that would mean? Uh, and in those days it was that was the the the, the cry to uh, for a man, is, you know, they, they didn't wear pants in the way that we wear uh, pants and they would, they would uh, take the robe and they would pull it up among their waist and they would tie it around their belt. And it was an, it was, uh, an action that you did to prepare for battle, to prepare for running, to prepare for some kind of work. It was hard to, to do those types of things in the kind of clothes that they wore in those days. And so before they were to engage in some sort of physical activity, they would gird up the loins. And so, put it a little bit more plainly in English here for us, dress for battle like a man. If you want to look at a couple of other places, we see this phrase used. Isaiah 5, 27 talks about getting ready for battle in this way. And then in 1 Kings 18, 46, it's get ready for running. One uh, commentator believes that this is a term that was used to refer to an ancient sport called Belt wrestling. If you've never never heard of belt wrestling, I encourage you to look that up on YouTube this afternoon. It still goes on today and it's a very uh, weird sport. But uh, if you think of sumo wrestling but with more clothes, uh, that's that's what belt wrestling is. And, And some say that this is what God is inviting Job to do and not just in a figurative sense but really to get in the ring with me and contend to fight against God but with wisdom. So the structure we have before us are two speeches, and each speech has an introduction, and then the main body of it, which is most of it, and then we have a conclusion followed by a brief reply from Job. So let's look at them together. Uh, look at each of these speeches, and then uh, come up with uh, some application to it. The introduction to the first speech is the first three verses of Job, which we already read there. That he says, uh, "Job, you have you have darkened." Uh, you've darkened questions by words without knowledge. You darken counsel by words without knowledge. You do things, uh, you speak of things you don't know and you've, you've hidden the truth. So it's time to answer for that. And so he begins to ask questions. And in this first speech, we see it in, in three uh, main questions that he will ask him. First of all, he will ask Job, "Can you create like God? Look at verses four. Um, We'll read a few of those. It says, Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. This is dripping with sarcasm here. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? And he asks him here firstly, What do you know about the earth, Job? Where were you when it all began? Were you there to be a witness to how it was laid out? How it was stretched out? And what undergirds it? And what's the foundation of it? Were you there when you watched it being built? Of course not. In, in, in the way that he asks it, saying there, uh, when you were born. You were born then, but to, to be born means that you had a, uh, that you had a... Uh, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm thinking of another passage here when he talks about him being born. But to be born there implies that you have a beginning. Job was, Job was not that old of a man, and, he, and God asks him, first of all, where were you? Verse number 4, do you know how the earth came to be? Did the earth come to be because of your great power? Or because of your great wisdom? Tell me, Job, verse number 5, who did it? If not you, do you at least know who? Verse number 5 and verse number 8 there, who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb? Who, when I, and there he gives the answer, I made the clouds as a garment, and thick darkness as swaddling band, and prescribed limits for it, and set bars and doors, and said, Thus far shall you come, and no farther, and here shall your proud waves be stayed. So now he's talking about the waters. He's talking about the land, he's talking about the water, and that God made the, the, the everything that is, but he specifically talks about how he brought the, the land out of the waters, he, he put limits and boundaries on the oceans and says you will go no further than the boundaries I have set. This is, this is all uh, summarized by the psalmists in Psalm 24. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein, because He has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. God knows because God was there. Because God was the One who did it all? And Job needs to realize, first of all, you weren't there. and You don't know. And there is much more to this world than you can ever understand. Can you create like God? Secondly, in verses 12-38, he asks the question, can you govern like God? Can you rule the world like I do? He asks in verse number 12 there, if he can command the dawn. The, the, the actual sun coming up every morning. Can you tell it to do that? Can you make it light when you want it to be light? And can you tell it where to go? No, it does it all on its own. Or it does it at least apart from Job's uh, uh, intentions. He says there that uh, you haven't commanded the dawn since your days began, verse 12. And it and, and, and says, have you caused the dawn to know its place, that it might take hold of the skirts of the earth? Of course not. All these questions are of, of no, no I don't, I don't know these, and no I didn't, and no I can't. And, and it's all uh, going through there. And then in verse number 16, he changes the subject again to ask him about death. Have you entered the springs of the sea, or walked in the recesses of the deep? And as I mentioned before, in the ancient, in the ancient uh, Eastern understanding the sea was symbolic of death and chaos. And it was to go down below the sea was to go to where death is. And so as we begin to talk about the sea, notice then how he parallels it with with death there. He goes on to say, uh, have the gates of death been revealed to you? Or have you seen the gates of deep darkness? No, Job has never been there. Job will go to the gates of death one day, but at this point he has not gone there yet, and Job does not know how to get there. Job cannot take people there. Uh, Job does not know about death. And, and for the rest of this chapter, and I would really encourage you to read through these, these speeches, because God speaks a lot about water in one shape or another. And it's very uh, close to what Elihu was saying about how in his speech about how God can use one thing for multiple purposes. God can use one thing for judgment or for blessing. And we see God explained that, in much better ways than Elihu could, that uh, he can use his creation for his different purposes. So he continues in verse number 19 to ask God, or to ask Job about the, 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 uh, the lightness and the darkness. Do you know where they dwell? Do you know where to find them? In verse number 31, uh, do you know how to govern the galaxies? Can you tell the the different stars and the constellations how to appear and how to form and where to go and all those things? He says in verse 31, can you bind the chains of the Pleiades or loose the cords of Orion? Can you lead forth the Maseroth in their season? or Can you guide the bear with his children? And talking about all these different uh, constellations that are in the night sky. Of course Job cannot do that. God is the only governor of the earth and of the universe. And then in verse number 39 of chapter 38, he asks him a third question. And this goes through the end of chapter 39. First he asks, can you create like God? Then he asks, can you govern like God? And now he'll ask, can you sustain life like God? Not only did God get this whole thing started, God has kept it going by His... Wisdom and by his might. He asks in verse, beginning in verse number 39, there, he says, Can you hunt the prey for the lion or satisfy the appetite of the young lions? If you read through this, you'll notice many times the animals that God will begin to talk about are not necessarily the full grown ones, but the little babies. And notice this, this, is very interesting. I've read this many times and it took me, uh, it took me uh, someone else to help me to see something that I, I rushed over many times before. In verse number 39, he's talking about these young lions and notice what he says there. Can you hunt the prey for the lion or satisfy the appetite of the young lions when they crouch in their dens or lie in wait in their thicket? Who provides for the raven its prey when its young ones cry out to God for help and wander about for lack of food? Think about these little cuddly lion cubs. I don't, I don't think ravens are cuddly, but these, these, the, the new animal life is cute when they're babies, aren't they? But a lion cub might, it does not stay cute. A lion cub might be cuddly. You might be able to hold it at some petting zoo, but not, for, uh, not in its first few months, or not after it's grown for a few months, or not after, not after a year. Right, you can't, you these, these cuddly things don't end up staying cuddly. They become ferocious and, and very dangerous and very savage. But notice what God has asked him here. He's not saying that uh, and everything that, that Job cannot do, God is saying, I can do. And when he says in verse number 39, can you hunt the prey for the lion? Can you sustain the needs of the little lion cubs? No, you can't, Job. I do that. God himself sustains the lion cup. Now think about what do lions eat? Lions eat other animals. What do ravens eat? Ravens are not uh, are vegetarians. Ravens eat other animals. They are birds of prey. And so for God to sustain life of one animal, he must take life from other animals. So in doing good here, he must cause pain and suffering over here. And this is what God is getting, getting Job to understand there. That God provides for his creatures in a way that one might say, I don't like how you've set it up, God. I don't like that the young antelope might say, God, I, I really wish you would have made all, the, all the, my, my predators vegetarians because by satisfying them and keeping them alive, I must die. And it's the same goes with us, huh? Everything that we eat has died first. If it's real food, if it's prepackaged and stuff, it's probably just chemicals. But if if you eat vegetables or if you eat meat, something died so that you might stay alive. And this is God's plan. Then he goes on, uh, in the beginning of chapter 39, he starts talking about all these different other animals, and these are not tame animals. Remember, Job was a farmer. Remember, Job had camels, and he had oxen, he had all kinds of things, but they were domesticated. Now God takes him out the farm, if you will, and He takes him out into the wilderness, out into the great wild, and He shows them the animals of the animal kingdom that are not domesticated, that are wild animals, and He asks them, could you care for these? Would, you, uh, would, you, would they even obey you? Is As he asks Aaron, verse number 9, he starts talking about the wild ox. He's talked about the mountain goats. He's talked about the wild donkeys. They wouldn't obey you. They don't need you, Job. They take care of themselves. He goes in verse number 13 and he begins to talk about the ostrich and that God has blessed the ostrich with one thing and yet deprived of it of another blessing. God has given the ostrich great speed and so that it can laugh at horses and, and it can run away very quickly and it's, it's the, fastest, uh, the fastest among its peers. And yet, God has deprived the ostrich of wisdom in the way that it cares for its young. It does things that don't make any sense to us who have the wisdom of caring for our young. But this is what God has done. Then he goes on and he and he asks him about the war horse in verse nineteen and he and he says, "Are you the one who gave the war horse its power?" And don't just think about the horse that that you you know that you went to at the fair and you rode the pony rides uh, when you were six, that kind of horse. But no, the war horse, the one that is that is unafraid of battle, the one that is. Uh, if you're thinking of of uh, what is it, the uh, um, those uh, those dark horses, the 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 military horses. I can't. Uh, the analogy that I had in my head is gone but the, these, these great strong beasts that are used to charge into battle that can, be, uh, can jump like it grasshoppers, it says there. This is, this is the horse that God says, did you do anything to help this horse out, Job? No. And finally, at the end of the chapter there in 26-30, He says, did you teach the birds where to fly? Do you tell them where to build their nests? No. No, Job did not do any of those things. And so in summary, God is very sure to say, Job, a lot happened before you were born. Much is happening out of your reach. Much is happening out of your control. There is much happening that is out of your sight. And there is much happening that you do not even understand. God does all of these things. And in conclusion, then, Job, God asks Job, why then do you find fault? Can a fault finder, Verse four, uh, chapter 40, verse 2, shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? Job, you don't understand these things and yet you sit back and you find fault with what I do. Can you really contend? Do you really want to contend with the Almighty God? Of course not. And So Job's reply seems to be very genuine here. He is sincerely first admitting uh, his, uh, who he is, a mission of self, basically saying, I'm nobody. Verse 4, I'm a small account. But then he says, and, Joe, and God, I'm not going to speak anymore. He promises silence. An admission of self and a promise of silence. He will no longer question God. He will no longer demand answers from Him. But that's not enough. Because God doesn't satisfy with what Job has confessed thus far, because he goes right into verse number six with yet another speech. His second speech here has an introduction, verses six and seven. And notice how it starts off with again, dress for action. I will question you. Notice verse eight. Will you put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be in the right? And he goes and asks, Basically, he doesn't ask three questions. He says three things. He asks the question and then makes two comparisons. Here, in a way, God has conceded. There is no way you could fight with me. There is no way that you could last with me for even a moment. And so, let's see what you can stand up against. And so, he asks the question first in verse number eight. There are you like God? Are you are you able? To, are you an equal with me that you could stand in my in my in my ring? Are you equal with me in strength and power? Verse number 9. And then he goes on to say in verses 10-14, if you can do what I do, then I'll acknowledge you. But of course he cannot. He says, well, let's find someone who's maybe a little bit more your size. How about behemoth? In Verse number 15. What is behemoth? We don't really know. A lot of people have some, some ideas and it's fascinating to think about and there's a very vivid description of this. And Some say that it's, a, it's an actual animal that we have around today. And some say that it's a dinosaur of some, of some sort. I don't think that it's meant for us to go and do some scientific research and figure this out. Let's not get lost uh, in, the, in the weeds here. Let's focus on what God has said here. And in verse 15 of chapter 40, He reminds him, you are not as powerful as Behemoth." He says there, Behold, behemoth, which I made as I made you. He eats grass like an ox. Behold, his strength is in his loins, and his power in the muscles of his belly. He's getting around there. Job, there's no way you could handle him. Some say that this is a hippopotamus. It meets meets a lot of the descriptions there, except for some very big ones like his tail that is not like a cedar. If you've ever seen a hippopotamus tail. Um... But the idea that he's getting at is that you are not anywhere near as powerful as the behemoth. Now, let's try another animal. How about Leviathan? Well, Now, Leviathan, we've heard about him already. We hear about him later on as a symbol of symbol like, uh, Satan here. But he asks here of Leviathan, a creature whom also God has made, he says, you're not as strong as behemoth and you're not as powerful as Leviathan. In chapter 41, all of it's about Leviathan, and I'll just read to you verse 33. He says, On earth there is not his like, a creature without fear. He sees everything that is high. He is king over all the sons of pride. You are not, as, you're not a match for even Leviathan. And if you are no match for Behemoth or for Leviathan, then you are no match for me. And again, we are getting Job to be persuaded of the fact that he cannot be God. He can't even best another creature. It reminded me last night, as I was dwelling on this a little bit more, that this is somehow related to the very beginning of of the creation. When God created man in chapter one, Genesis 1 and verse 28, He said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea. And yet, here, we see that man, we are reminded at least, once again, that man does not have dominion as he was intended to have. Man has not subdued the creation as he was intended to have, and it's because he sinned. Because of sin, man's failure to obey God, he has lost that, uh, that capability to do these things, and God reminds him here many times, you do not have dominion over these animals. You don't even know where many of them are. You don't care for them. You don't sustain them in any way. And it's because of sin. But the Gospel, the good news of the Gospel is that a man did live without sin and that he did subdue the earth. He has subdued it and all power and dominion on heaven and on earth have been given to him. Matthew 28.28 Jesus Christ lived in perfect obedience and yet died as the perfect sacrifice. And The King of kings, the Lord of lords who rules and reigns today Calls every man and woman, boy and girl, to bow in submission and to confess that he is Lord. Job has been listening for quite some time. Job is, I believe, sufficiently overwhelmed. Very quickly, let me just look at Job's reply in verse 1 through 6 of chapter 42. He answers God's questions, and if you notice, and you want to care to look back at them, firstly, he answers God's question from chapter thirty-eight, verse two, when God, he quotes God, "Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge?" That's what God said in thirty-eight two. And then he answers God's second question from thirty-eight three and forty verse seven. Hear, and I will speak. I will question you, and you make it known to me. He's not saying this to God. He is repeating what God has said, and then providing His answer, let me very briefly share with you Job's reply. First of all, he admits God's sovereignty. Verse number two. I know that you can do all things. God is sovereign. Nothing outside of God's power. Number two, he admits his own sin. Verse number three there he says, I have uttered what I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. He is admitting, obviously, limited knowledge here, but in what he has said, he has sinned. We know what he said. He knows what he said, and God has called him out for it, and he admits his sins. Thirdly, he admits his new perspective of God. Maybe one of the more famous verses of of the whole book, verse number five, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Job had a pretty good, representation, understanding of who God is, until he went through this suffering, and he realized, I knew nothing like I know you now. His previous perspective is now clearer and truer of who God is. And then finally, in verse number six, he repents. Because of this new perspective, the... Initial reaction and the appropriate reaction to the new perspective of God, to a right perspective of God, is repentance. Job says, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Now, Job has not changed his position on suffering. He still believes that he is innocent. But what Job has changed now is his attitude about his suffering. Job believes now that God is not wrong in what he has brought into his life. He's changed his attitude. Job here, as I said, was, not, was, was meant to realize that there's so much that he doesn't understand. That he is powerless to control or affect. We, as the reader, should respond similarly as, to Job. As we become overwhelmed by what we do not know. As we read these words in other places in Scripture, we are to be reminded, I don't know so much about this world, about the future, about my present, how to rear my children, how to love my wife as I should, or how to submit to my husband as I should, or how to love my neighbor as myself as I should. I don't know about what tomorrow will bring. I don't know how to make the right decisions. I don't know. And I'm overwhelmed by the fact that I don't know. We are to acknowledge then the sovereignty of God in are suffering even but the things that may be happening to you right now. God is sovereign in that. God could have stopped it, and He didn't. The same God who feeds the young lion is the same God who took the life of the antelope. The same God who brought you new life is the same God who. Bruised his own son so that you could live again. As we acknowledge the sovereignty of God and our own limited understanding, then we repent of our pride and whatever else sin might be revealed in our suffering. Do you realize that sometimes suffering is brought into our lives to reveal sin that is there? Maybe Job would have never realized how proud of a man he was until his suffering. It may be that God brings suffering into your life to show us how proud we are. I can handle myself. I can take care of my business. And God strips it all away and we realize, I can't. I never could. I just thought I could. Finally, we are to bow and submit to whatever God chooses for our lives. Job is sufficiently persuaded of the sovereignty of, and the righteousness of God. The question for us, are we persuaded? Can you honestly say that God rules and reigns perfectly? That whatever my God ordains is right? And I think that we would want to say yes. Yeah, I believe that. But we don't really know until we're really put to the test, do we? Do you really believe that God is wise and knows what he's doing or do you believe you know better it's revealed in the way we pray sometimes telling God how he needs to do it it's revealed in the way we react to when God doesn't do the way we wanted him to do we offer God advice like King Alfonso do we have a couple of hints tips for God who really is got most of it figured out but I mean Maybe I could offer something. Is that how we think? Do we expect God to govern by our standards? What if God took your child? Would He be sovereign in your mind still? What if God brought you great financial ruin? Would He still be sovereign? What if God took away all your freedoms, what if God judged our great country and the great United States of America fell, was no more, we no longer lived as free people, would God still be sovereign, would God still be right, what if God took all your children away, all your wealth and covered your body and sores. And then He brought you friends who didn't encourage you but sat with you and accused you and condemned you. How would you respond then? That's what Job experienced. We want to, be, we want to think we would respond rightly but we just don't know for sure. But we can know this for sure. Whatever happens to us in life, God is sovereign. Sovereign. He knows what he is about. We do not. We have an incomplete understanding and a very limited power. All that we do is still enabled. We have been enabled by God. When God moves in our lives, we, like Job, must acknowledge his sovereignty and our limited understanding. May we pray for a clearer and truer view of of the great God of heaven. May that event in our lives, be it good or bad, lead us to confession and repentance of sin. that may be in our lives we don't even realize it until that suffering reveals it. And then may we bow to him, submit, worship. Job was commended for what he said at the very beginning of his suffering and I wonder if Job said it again, and it just wasn't recorded. The Lord gave, the Lord took away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Can you say that? Can you say that right now? Will you say that tomorrow when the blessings you have today are not there? Will you say it tomorrow when the blessings are there? Or will we just go on in thinking, yeah, I deserve these things, It's the great American dream. These are rights. We believe that until they're gone. Will we still bless God? Would you pray with me? Our Father, these are difficult words to hear and to to think about honestly and truthfully. You are God. God. And and that, that sinful heart in me and in each one of us here does not like that one bit. We want to be God. We want to be in charge and in control and we want things done our way and you graciously and mercifully do not do it our way because our hearts are ruled by pride and by greed and selfishness and know so little. Oh, you, God, who knows everything, do all things well and all things right. And Lord, we bless you for what you have given to us in our lives that we count as good. We bless you for what you bring into our lives that we would think is not good, for suffering, for pain loss. Because though we do not know exactly why you've done these things, we know that there is a reason for them and that you are not going to do the wrong thing. We don't ask for answers. We ask for grace. Grace to endure despite knowing many questions and little answers. We ask for mercy, for those times when we revert back to that sinful heart of wanting to be God and wanting to know and and to understand and to be able to approve what you do. Lord, there are people in this room right now, today, going through great suffering, many very different than anyone else that we know. Some going through some very typical things that many most people go through. Some going through things that we don't even know about. Some of us may be headed towards some great suffering just around the corner. We don't know what you have for us. We don't know what, what you're doing, why you're doing it, but we can trust you. So help us please to trust you because We are frail people and we do not naturally trust you. We want to do things our way. Give us the grace we need to believe that you are God and that you are good. That you are faithful. May we, through whatever event in life you bring, respond with grace and trust. May we honor you however it turns out for us. May we bless you because you are worthy of honor and glory and blessing. For just a moment where we sit, let us continue to reflect on